Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Would you like to write nonfiction articles that get thousands, if not millions of views? If so, I'd like you to meet or study the writing of Jeff Hayden. He's a nonfiction writer, author and ghostwriter that I've admired and followed online for some time. Jeff has written thousands of popular articles for publications like Inc. And he's also recently published The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win. Jeff specializes in non-fiction writing, and I recently had the chance to catch up with him. And in this interview, we talk about why goals, like writing goals, don't always work and what you should do instead. He gets into his research process for his articles for Inc. and for his books. He also talks about how he writes viral articles and his method for handling articles to get lots of views and ones that don't. In other words, he talks about what to do if you're a little bit disappointed when something doesn't perform as well as you would like. Jeff also covers a lot of other topics, including his early morning writing routine, which I think you'll find particularly intriguing. But I started by asking Jeff why he wrote The Motivation Myth in the first place. It's kind of long-winded, so bear with me. Um, But I was... The real genesis of it, I was talking with Venus Williams, which, you know, if you're going to drop a name, Venus is a good drop and name to drop. Yeah. And uh, she was, you know, you, you think about her and, you know, clearly she's a world-class tennis player, but she also does a number of other things. She runs a design company. She runs a fitness apparel company. And they're not just things that she's put her name on. She actually runs them. So she's succeeding at a high level in a number of ventures. And so, you know, I just said to her, you know, clearly these are all things that you wanted to do from, you know, childhood and you had a passion for, you know, because we're taught that, you know, you have to have a passion first. And she said, no, they're just things I was interested in and decided to try to get better at. And so I've contrasted that with all the people that write to me and talk to me about how they can't find that passion. They can't find the one thing that, you know, they want to do with their lives and they feel stuck. And, you know, if you look at that, a lot of the really successful people I've talked to, They didn't have that lightning bolt moment of, oh, wow, this is my path. This is my purpose. This is my vision. This is my passion. They just had something they were interested in and they tried to get better at it. And the process of doing so, of putting in a little bit of effort, making a little bit of improvement, which makes you feel good because it's always fun to do better at something, that gave them the motivation to keep going. And so they had this little virtuous cycle of constant effort, improvement, validation, and motivation that fed on itself basically forever. Whereas everyone that felt stuck was waiting for this major lightning bolt that said, oh my gosh, I've got all the motivation I need for the rest of my life, you know, and here I go. And I don't really think that it works that way. And so that was mainly the purpose. If you feel stuck or you're not sure what you want to do, you don't have to have the perfect path or the perfect idea or this lightning bolt of passion that will get you the motivation you need. You can just explore something you're interested in And the process of doing that, if you create a process to improve that pretty much guarantees you will make improvements, that will give you all the motivation you need. Sorry that was so long-winded, but hopefully you can make something out of that. Yeah, yes. So if I am going to get started on something that I want to improve, another idea that you talk about in the book is how writing down a goal isn't necessarily the best approach either. And there's there's another way that I should go after something that I I want, so to speak. Well, I think you, you have to have a goal. 
But the goal, you know, we're taught that we have to maintain this laser-like focus on our goals. And, you know, you should have a poster on your wall that reminds you of where you're trying to go and all that stuff. A goal is important because it informs the process you create to get there. And I know it's a cliche, but if you don't know where you're going, then it's hard to create a process to get there. But really, the idea is, and I'll use a really simple example. If you're, if on your bucket list is that you want to run a marathon, okay, running the marathon is your goal. But you don't need that on your wall and you don't need posters and you don't need to remind yourself of that every day. You just use that goal as the foundation for the process that you create that will get you there. And then what you focus on every day is whatever you need to do that day that is part of your process that will get you to that end result of running the marathon. So the focus has to shift immediately from this is my end goal to okay, I've created a process. So what is it that I need to do today? And if you do what you set out to do today, you get to feel good about the fact that you did it. Feeling good about it is motivating and inspiring. And that will give you that little dose of motivation you need the next day to do whatever it is on your process for that day. As opposed to sitting back and thinking, you know, I've got to constantly picture myself crossing the finishing line and getting my finisher medal or else I won't have the motivation to get there. Because in those dark early days of, you know, when it's hard to even run a couple miles, it's hard to be inspired by the thought of crossing the finish line when it's, you know, when you feel like hot death. And that the big problem there is that whole distance between here and there, where here, and I write about that too, where here is wherever you are. And then there is accomplishing this really huge goal. And that gulf just seems way too far. And it becomes demotivating because you think, how am I ever going to get all the way across there based on how I feel here? But if all you have to do today is, based on your process, run that one mile and you do it, you get to feel good. Your here is much closer to your there. And that allows you to stay motivated and stay the course. And have you run a marathon? I do lots of cycling stuff. So I've done centuries and I've done Grand Fondos. Uh, the okay. biggest one was a hundred and some miles and 11,000 feet of climbing. And, you know, so I, I tend to do that sort of stuff. But the, the principle still applies because the first Grand Fondo I rode, I hadn't been on a bike at all. And I decided to ride this hundred mile one and I had four months to train. And so the first day I went on road, you know, it was awful. And I didn't get that far and I felt terrible. And, and I just thought, there's no way I can do that. Had I only been focused on the fact that I someday needed to be able to do the 100 miles and 11,000 feet of climbing, I would have quit. But if by focusing on, okay, today I have to do X and Y and Z, I could do that. And if I did that, okay, I get to feel good. I get to check that off the list. And tomorrow I'll go out and do whatever it is tomorrow. So you really just have to keep your head down and do the work. As long as you've created a process that allows you to get to where you want to go. And that's a really important point. And another idea that you write about in the book is how one question can provide nearly all of the answers. So perhaps mm -hmm. somebody wants to become fit or trim or healthy. So what is that one question? Well, it, it varies. I got that from... Um, Herb Kelleher, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, who I, I think passed away recently, I'm not sure. But his one question, you know, if you think about a guy that's running a, an airline, they're answering probably dozens or hundreds of questions a day. And so the way he did that is he framed everything through the lens of, will this make Southwest Airlines the low-cost provider? If the answer is yes, then the answer to the question is probably yes, or at least it's worth exploring. And if it's no, well, then you say, no, we're not doing that. And so 
you can apply that one, one question principle to whatever big thing you're trying to achieve. So if we use the marathon example, and you don't feel like running today, but you're supposed to, the question you ask is, would a person who runs marathons skip a workout? And obviously, the answer to that is no, because that's not how that works. You can apply it to you know, leadership. You see uh, two employees that are having some kind of interpersonal issue. And you can say, would a good leader ignore dysfunction in a team? And the answer to that, of course, is no. And that guides your decision. So it, it allows you to unclutter what seem to be complex situations and just boil them down to that simple thing. You know, the idea of uh, if you're on a diet, you know, would a, <laughs> would a person who's trying to lose 20 pounds eat two pieces of chocolate cake after dinner? Well, no. You know, none of that sounds trite, but it works because what it does is it, it puts you in the mind space of, I'm thinking about becoming the thing I want to do. I am worried about what I do. What I eventually want to be is that thing. So if you want to be a runner, you want to be a runner. You don't want to be a person who goes running every day. You want to actually be a runner and have that be part of your identity. And so that, that one question thing allows you to frame it in terms of identity and who you want to be. The example I use is anybody that has kids, do you have to wake up every day and say, wow, am I going to take care of my kids today? Well, no, you just do it because you're a parent and it's part of your identity. But you can apply the identity principle to just about anything else that you want to be. It just requires you to do the work for a while until you, in your mind, become that thing. Hopefully that made sense. Did you use that question for writing your book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the hard thing about my book was, um, and we can talk about this in the writing section, is that I, that's not the only thing I do. And I, I do a lot of work for other clients. And, and my bias is always towards taking care of client stuff rather than stuff that I would call, quote unquote, personal. You know, so writing the book was for me. And yet, if I had people that, you know, wanted things from me, then I would tend to always fall over on that side because I want to, you know, service people well and, you know, be a good provider of services. And so I had to stop and say, okay, you know, he's a guy who's trying to write a book and who has a deadline going to ignore that today and work on something else that can wait. And so I would constantly have to be saying, basically, it was, uh, you know, will I ever finish my book if I do this? <laughs> the answer was no. But it was really hard. I don't know if that happens to you, but... It does. It certainly does. for me to do something for someone else than it is for me to do it for me. Could you describe how somebody can... Or why somebody should work on their number rather than trying to work smarter? Oh, um, a lot of things that we do ultimately come down to... It's not a new phrase, but what I, I call the power of numbers, basically. And it's if there is something that you are doing where the number of repetitions or the number of efforts or whatever you want to call that, that that's a foundation of the success that you can have, then that's the way to go. Like say with cycling, this is probably a bad example and I'll, I'll try better in a second. If I haven't been riding for a while and I know I want to go ride a you know, 100 mile four mountain Grand Fondo, I know now that I need to put about 2,500 miles in my legs, so to speak. And so that's just basically the number. And I know that if I go and do that and I train to that degree, that when it comes time to ride, I'll be ready. I was talking to two ladies that founded a, a marketing company and they were talking about how cold calling wasn't much fun and it seemed like it took them you know, 10 calls to get one new client and how burdensome that was. And I, I stopped them and said, well, you know, how many new clients do you need a month? And they said, five. And I said, well, then you know your number. If nothing changes you need to make about 50 calls. And if that gets you the outcome that you need, 
then that's an okay process. You can still work to improve your strike rate and you can get better at pitching and all of that other stuff. So maybe it becomes two out of 10 or three out of 10 or whatever. But nonetheless, if that's the outcome you need, then you know your number. And so instead of seeing the 10 calls for a client as burdensome, just see it as the opportunity of, if I do this, I'm going to get that. And so the power of numbers applies whenever you can look at something and say, if I do this, then I will get to that. And it really simplifies things because then you can just focus on clicking off the numbers that you need, knowing that you will get to an outcome. And I know it's not always that simple, but it's surprising how frequently it is actually that simple. I liked your example of the, the salesperson trying to find new customers who you know, perhaps didn't like placing all those calls. And once they hit their number, they, could, they don't have to do as much. And that, I think that's something you talked about in one of the last chapters of the book, do more by doing less. Are there any yep. other ways people can do more by doing less? I think the, this is probably a broader answer than the question you're asking, but let's see if it works. I think it's too tempting to assume that we need to have about five different major projects and goals going at the same time. I think the more things that you are trying to achieve, especially if they are big, then the less likely you are to achieve any of those. And so that, that's why I like the, the concept of being a serial achiever and saying, okay, I know that I want to do X and Y and Z, but which one makes the most difference in my life right now, whether that's financial or career or fulfillment or whatever your version or definition of success might be, which one makes the biggest difference? I'm going to focus on that one. And I'm going to create a process that allows me to accomplish that. And when you get to the other end, then you can look at it and say, okay, have I gotten everything I want out of this? Does this lead to something else? Is it time to try something new? And maybe you do. And it doesn't mean that you wasted all that effort you put into that first accomplishment because you take all that stuff with you to some new pursuit. and most importantly, you take the knowledge and the self-confidence that comes from having accomplished something big. So when you set out on something else that's huge, you can say, okay, this is going to be really hard, but I did that. So I know I know I can do these things. I know I know how to do it. I can accomplish this too. And I, I think that's really important. So one of the ways probably to accomplish more by doing less is just to weed out your list of goals and say, okay, I probably only have time for a certain number of things. So I'm going to work really hard at those and achieve them. And if I have to put something off, that's okay because I can get to it someday or maybe I never get to it. I don't know. But at least you will have accomplished more things than if you're putting 10% into 10 different things. That means you'll never get there. Yeah. Yeah. And your process has enabled you to be become a fairly prolific writer and author. So could you describe how your writing process unfolds on a typical day? That kind of evolved. And probably the biggest thing that I've done from a process point of view is to try to strip away everything that is not essential and that keeps me from actually sitting and writing. It's really easy to get caught up in all of that other stuff that you think you need to be doing in in order to support the quote-unquote business of writing. But really, it comes down to you make your money when you're actually writing. And so what I typically do the night before is I pick out whatever it is that's most important for me to do the next day. And I get that all set up and ready so that when I wake up, and this is going to sound non-hygienic, but when I wake up, I get up, I brush my teeth, my commute is two flights of stairs. I have a, a bottle of water and a protein bar sitting by my computer. I have whatever stuff that I think I need there. I have whatever document I need open on my computer. I have all that stuff all set up. And so I literally wake up, 
brush my teeth, go downstairs, sit down, and I have my protein bar while I start working. And so my time from waking up to working is a couple minutes, which is perfect for me because right away, I've eliminated all that resistance you have to getting started. And I get started and I'm working on something that's important and it's when I'm fresh. And so when I get it done, it feels great because it always feels good to knock off the thing that you really needed to get done. And I've got that cool momentum that comes from having gotten started and having accomplished something then that makes you feel good. And you like, okay, what's next? And what's next? And that carries basically throughout the day. If I get up and ease my way into work, then I don't know. I, I find it really hard to click over to, okay, <laughs> let's focus and let's work. But if I get started that way, that kind of goes. And then I always know what I want to do the next day, the night before, and I work on those things. And of course, other stuff comes up and, and sometimes that changes. But if you have that momentum going, then I think it's really easy to keep it going the rest of the day. As far as I'll answer a question you haven't asked yet, and maybe you weren't going to, but the whole idea of like writer's block or struggling, my approach to that is let's say I'm writing an article for Inc., which tend to be somewhere between 600 and 1,000 words, depending on what I'm doing. If I get, usually I can do seven or 800 words and have it be 98% what I want it to be within about a half an hour. And yeah. so if I'm 15 minutes in and I am struggling. What that says to me is that I haven't figured out what I want to say and I put it aside. I don't try to fight my way through it and I don't you know, try to cobble it together somehow. Because really, for me, I don't start something unless I already know in my head what I want to say. Now, how you say it kind of emerges sometimes in the process of writing. But what I want to say, if I sit down with a blank piece of paper and I don't know what I want to say, then, then I'm wasting my time because it's not just going to magically appear. So I'm really quick to set something aside if it isn't flowing. Um, I did have to learn the difference between it truly wasn't flowing and I just was being lazy. <laughs> you know, Because it is tempting to go, ah, this isn't going very well. I'm just going to put it aside. And sometimes you do need to fight through that. And, but over time, you do learn what that balance is. And I can tell when I'm being lazy and when I'm truly like, you know, I thought I had an idea, but I really don't. And I need to do something else. Yeah. So figuring out what you want to say, your articles have a lot of research and interviews in them. And I know you referenced uh, Venus Williams there at the start. So when do you find time for research or how do you approach research for your articles and, and even for your book? I actually don't do a, I don't do a tremendous amount of quote unquote research. If I have an idea for something, then I will take a quick look around to see if there is something that I can you know, use to support that. But usually what happens is that I'll be reading something else or I'll be looking at something else or I'll have a conversation with someone and that will spark an idea. And then I will use that. So it's almost like the quote unquote research comes first and that gives me the idea because I'll say, huh. so talking about like, for instance, part, one of the things in my book is the whole idea about if you tell people what your goal is and you describe it in great detail then oftentimes that means you are less likely to achieve that goal and research supports that because you've kind of seen yourself at the finish line and you've seen yourself accomplishing these things and that already feels good to you and you've got less impetus to want to get there. I remember reading that study and I thought, that's kind of cool and it's very counter, it's counterintuitive. And so I thought, 
that's a perfect idea for an article. So I, I had the research already and then I just fleshed it out from my own experience and from what other people had seen and done. And, and I did it that way. So I tend not to be like, uh, let me dig into scholarly journals for four hours and hope that I come up with some nugget. I think if you're just curious and you read a lot and you kind of look around and you're always on the alert for something, then plenty of stuff can come your way, depending on what it is that you write about, obviously. So what makes for a good nonfiction article today? Like you've written a lot of articles, some of which have gone viral and others, which I've heard you describe as getting, you know, not many views. <laughs> well, first, that depends on, you know, your audience. I, I write for a business audience. So that's different than some other long form thing or something political or, or whatever it might be. So I, I write for a business audience. So we'll preface with that. But the, the stuff that tends to get the widest play and be read by the most people is actionable, useful, helpful, practical, something I can use, something I can learn from, something that motivates me, something that entertains me. I know that's a lot of stuff. But then a really big key to it, especially in terms of people sharing things, because oftentimes that's where the viral audience comes from is you have to find a way for the reader to find themselves within that article. So they have to be able to go, okay, I've been there, or I've seen that, or I've done that, or I've felt that way, or I've been in this situation, or whatever those things may be. They have to be able to find themselves in it and be able to relate. And then for them to want to share it, it has to be something that they either feel reflects well on them or that they feel other people would benefit from, which takes you back to actionable, practical, useful, helpful, all of that other stuff. So, you know, it's all about, I know this is another cliche, but it is all about the reader. If, if you serve the reader, then you have a really good chance of something being widely read or viral or however you want to term that. And if there's even a hint of self-serving or, you know, showing off or, or whatever it may be that, you know, serves you, then people sniff that out instantly and that's the end of it. There used to be this standard that people would apply saying, you know, if you're writing for a business audience, but you're also hopefully hoping to sell something, you know, whether it's your services or products or whatever else, then you can do, you know, 10% promotional and 90% serving the reader. And I, I think it has to be 100%. And when I interview business people who you know, they want to be interviewed because they are hoping that it will gain either them attention as a thought leader or their company attention. You know, they want something and they want, many will want calls to action or they'll want, you know, long product descriptions or all that other stuff. And I always say, you need to be looking at this as if you can only bask in the reflected glow of your wit and wisdom. So if you provide great information to readers, if you teach them something, if they learn something from your experience, if you're a cautionary tale, whatever it may be, if they get to the end and say, wow, that was really good, that was meaningful to me, and they notice that you run this company or you do these things, they may check you out. But if in the middle, you're trying to shoehorn in some thinly veiled advertisement, then they're leaving and they're not going to think well of you and you're not going to have accomplished anything that maybe you hope to do with this. So that same principle applies, you know, you can't be self-serving as a writer and the people that you talk to can't be self-serving or at least can't come across that way or nobody cares. Where can people find you online, Jeff? Um, I write for Inc. It's Inc.com. Um, you search my name and there's, oh gosh, I don't know, I've probably got 1,500 articles there now. <laughs> um, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm an influencer, which is the only time in my life I'll be on a list with Richard Branson and Bill Gates. 
<laughs> and I do connect with people and I do answer questions and things. I don't always answer them within, you know, six hours. It may take me a day or two to get to you, but if people want to connect, they, I certainly do that. And that's probably the best. That was great. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.